we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Wars That Shaped the World uses dynamic, immersive audio to depict scenes of warfare. This episode contains racially insensitive language. Listener discretion is advised. Two days before Christmas 1950, General Bulldog Walker was a man in a hurry. The commander of the US 8th Army had the defense of South Korea to organize. Bulldog Walker was not going to permit another retreat all the way back to Busan. This time, the communists would be stopped. 10 miles outside Seoul, he urged the driver of his Jeep to get a move on its engine straining as it overtook a column of trucks. Another truck was coming the other way. The Jeep hit it head on. The holidays won't be the same without you here. General Walton H. Walker, victor of the Pusan perimeter, hapless commander of the humiliating retreat from the Yalu River, was dead. Little bit more than any other time of year. Well, my heart it would break if you weren't here to harmonize a Christmas song. The holidays. And I said to him, Colonel, are those your pants? <laughs> Back home in the United States, Lieutenant General Matthew Ridgway was sipping cocktails at a friend's house when he was called to the telephone. Hello? He is, yes. Who shall I say is calling? Sorry? It's a bad line. Ah, General Collins, of course. I'll just fetch him now for you, General. Please hold on. Matthew! Matthew, it's for you! You better save my seat, Peter. <laughs> hey, hey. It's your boss, Matthew. I am so sorry, Mabel. <clears throat> General. Matt? Yes? Pack your bags, Matt. We're sending you out to this goddamn mess in Korea. Ridgway returned to his seat and finished his cocktail. Then he went home to pack. The 56-year-old Ridgway was a paratrooper by trade. He'd commanded the 82nd Airborne in Normandy and shone in the freezing forests of the Ardennes. He'd finished the Second World War with the reputation as one of the outstanding US battlefield commanders. His appointment to replace Walker was a masterstroke. Not only did Ridgway reinvigorate the 8th Army into checking the Chinese onslaught, 
he turned the tide too. And what's more, with his success, he may well have prevented the Korean War becoming a nuclear conflict. His success in turning the 8th Army's morale around using little more than a magnetic personality and bold leadership is still a model for the Army, showing how the power of leadership can dramatically change a situation. General Omar Bradley was to judge what Ridgway did in Korea as the greatest feat of personal leadership in the history of the Army. By Christmas Day, Matt Ridgway was in Tokyo to meet his new boss, the 70-year-old Douglas MacArthur. Matt, you must hold soul as long as you can, but not, you understand, if that means being surrounded. I'm not looking for another Alamo here, okay? We must stabilize the situation, stop the damn Reds from getting south. Okay, General, okay. But if I find the combat situation to my liking... Your liking? Yes, sir, what I mean is, if I like what I see, do you have any objection to my attacking? Heck, Matt, the 8th Army is yours. You do what you think best. This is Wars That Shaped the World. While Ridgway flew on to Seoul to breathe new life into the battered 8th Army, MacArthur waited for a message from Washington. The day before, he'd sent a dispatch to President Truman and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It listed 26 targets in North Korea and China, on which Douglas MacArthur wanted to drop nuclear bombs. MacArthur wanted four dropped on the Chinese divisions in North Korea that had devastated his army. The biggest embarrassment of not only MacArthur's career, but also, some argue, in US military history. The US had been humiliated by lightly armed Chinese soldiers. For MacArthur, this was too much. The US had nuclear weapons. It was time to use them. MacArthur was not alone in the military in holding this view. The chiefs of staff thought it was time to go nuclear, as did many generals. We have the weapon, the enemy do not, and the enemy must be stopped. This, after all, is a battle to the death against communism. 
a last man standing conflict. Far more took the view that the United States should stop consulting anybody and should just use the atomic bomb. Their emotional reaction to the whole problem was that Russia is solely responsible and that therefore the logical thing to do is to atom bomb Moscow. The British were horrified at suggestions the US might go nuclear and sought assurances from President Truman. Truman told Clement Attlee it was not an option, except it was. The US military were already preparing to use nuclear weapons. It was, in Truman's own words, under active consideration. In Tokyo, MacArthur fumed. What was Washington waiting for? He was livid when he discovered Washington's war aims were changing. The idea of Korean unification had been trampled in the retreat from the North. Instead, the focus was shifting towards restoring pre-war borders along the 38th parallel and then agreeing a ceasefire. But the nuclear option remained on the table. Meanwhile, in Korea, Ridgeway was making his mark. Through January and February, as the situation improved, so heads cooled in Washington. The feeling spread that if the US directly attacked China, especially with nuclear weapons, the Soviets would come in. And that meant World War III. This angered the Hawks in Congress and the Pentagon, and it infuriated Douglas MacArthur. He and his boss, President Truman, were heading in opposite directions. I could have won the war in Korea in a maximum of 10 days. I would have dropped between 30 and 50 atomic bombs on his air bases and other depots strung across the neck of Manchuria. It was my plan, as our amphibious forces moved south, to spread behind us from the Sea of Japan to the Yellow Sea a belt of radioactive cobalt. It could have been spread from wagons, carts, trucks, and planes. For at least 60 years, there could have been no land invasion of Korea from the north. The enemy could not have marched across that radiated belt. The early months of 1951 were also a time for Chinese deliberation. They found themselves in a far better position than they could ever have expected, and it led to them overreaching just as MacArthur had done. Instead of suggesting a ceasefire from a position of strength, Mao's commanders convinced the regime they could achieve the goal of unifying Korea under communist rule. With UN forces being reinforced and revitalized, and US air and navy supremacy absolute, that was never an achievable outcome. And that was in no small part down to Ridgeway. With his trademark grenade clipped onto his webbing, Ridgway set about breathing new fire into the 8th Army. The leadership I found in many instances sadly lacking, and I said so out loud. I discovered our forces were simply not mentally and spiritually ready for the sort of action I'd been planning. The men I met along the road, those I stopped to talk to and solicit gripes from, they too all conveyed to men a conviction that this was a bewildered army, not sure of itself or its leaders, not sure what they were doing there, wondering when they would hear the whistle of that homebound transport. Ridgway thought his new troops timid, lacking imagination. He set about change. Divisional commanders who'd been in place for six months were rotated home. 
He wanted fresh generals who'd be more interested in attack and not weighed down by the horrors of the retreat from the north. He ordered senior officers to spend less time in command posts, more on the front line. See and be seen, get confidence back into the men. Ridgway wanted to change the way the US forces operated, both in defense and attack. He was not the first to see US units' dependency on the road as a weakness. They were too easy to outflank, a favored tactic of the communists. Ridgway addressed the issue directly. Get off the roads and into the mountains, he ordered the infantry divisions. It was a time for foot slogging. We need a toughness of soul as well as body, he insisted. Colonel Iron Mike Michaelis, one of the few successes among American mid-rank commanders, called Ridgway a magician. The British were amazed by the speed of transformation. It was incredible, the change that came over the Americans and their discipline. They started to wash their vehicles and things like that. The UN forces now occupied a line across the peninsula north of Seoul. Chinese supply lines were overextended. Their manpower was running low. The UN had all the advantages again, but still the Chinese attacked. On Boxing Day, Ridgway's first day in station, South Korean units on the approaches to Seoul broke. Ridgway ordered a general retreat, but a fighting one. Contact was to be maintained with the enemy. Seoul was evacuated, changing hands for the third time. The UN retreated across the Han River and blew the bridges. It took most of January for the situation to stabilize, but by the end of the month, the UN had drawn another defensive line across the peninsula. Now, Ridgway was ready to go on the offensive. He began with small-scale attacks, such as Operation Wolfhound, which saw Colonel Michaelis' men inflict over a thousand casualties on the enemy at a cost of three dead. We're still alive and kicking, was Ridgway's message. By early February, they were on the banks of the Han opposite Seoul. But back came the Chinese. Another huge nighttime assault with bugles blowing and drums beating. At the vital Chipyongni Road Junction, the 2nd Infantry Division, a unit that had been broken in the retreat from the north, turned anti-aircraft guns on the Chinese and held them off. It was a key moment in the shift of American morale. Marshal Bouchier, a British observer, reported to London. The myth of the magical millions of the Chinese in Korea has been exploded. In the last UN offensive, the Americans learned how easy it is to kill the Chinese and their morale has greatly increased thereby. Ridgway ordered an immediate counter. Operation Killer was hampered by poor weather. Heavy rain and thawing snow turned roads to mud. But Ridgway persisted. Soon, Seoul changed hands for a fourth and final time. As spring arrived, the 8th Army pushed on to the 38th and beyond. This time, it was not an invasion of the North. Ridgway knew the Communists would launch a spring offensive and wanted to prepare a series of defensive lines. With every step of Ridgway's advance, so Truman and Washington drifted away from the use of nuclear weapons and drifted away 
from how General MacArthur wanted to conduct the war. Tensions were mounting between MacArthur and his civilian bosses. MacArthur wanted to attack China itself. He demanded reinforcements, as well as air and naval bombardments of the Chinese mainland. And, most incendiary of all, he wanted to bring Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist Chinese forces from Taiwan to fight the Chinese communists. Washington refused. They were not sure what to do about MacArthur. His belligerence did not fit with their new war aims. Getting back to pre-war borders and getting Ridgeway to inflict as much damage as possible on communist forces so the US would be in a strong position to push for a ceasefire. The goal of reuniting Korea was long gone. While Truman raised the prospect of peace talks, in Tokyo at King MacArthur's court, the obsession was with crushing Red China. MacArthur believed even more deeply than before that Red Chinese aggression in Asia could not be stopped by killing Chinese, no matter how many, in Korea, so long as her power to make war remained inviolate. Finally, MacArthur snapped. He wrote to a congressman, Joseph Martin of Massachusetts, complaining how the war was being waged. Martin published the letter. One senator declared the US had two policies, MacArthur's and the president's. It couldn't go on. The White House decided MacArthur had to go. The decision to sack America's most popular general was to be announced on Wednesday, 12th of April. But the Chicago Tribune got wind. So the night before, at half past midnight, Truman's order chanted out of the Pentagon's teletype machine. With deep regret, I have concluded that the general of the army, Douglas MacArthur, is unable to give his wholehearted support to the policies of the United States government and of the United Nations in matters pertaining to his official duties. I have decided I must make a change of command in the Far East. I have therefore relieved General MacArthur of his commands. I have designated Lieutenant General Matthew B. Ridgway as his successor. Ridgway backed MacArthur's sacking, as did most senior commanders. He feared MacArthur's plans would lead to World War III. MacArthur was lunching in the US Embassy in Tokyo when told of his dismissal. He set off home, claiming he'd been publicly humiliated after 52 years in the army. Back in the States, he was given a ticker tape parade and addressed Congress. Many Americans still thought him a hero, and a hero humbled. Truman's popularity suffered, but over time, few had any doubts the president had made the right call. I fired him because he wouldn't respect the authority of the president. I didn't fire him because he was a dumb son of a bitch, although he was. But that's not against the law for generals. If it was, Half to three quarters of them would be in jail. MacArthur's dismissal had little impact in Korea. Ridgway's replacement at 8th Army was James Van Fleet, a divisional commander under Eisenhower during the Second World War. Fleet's first task was facing China's fifth offensive of the war, the spring attack Ridgway was expecting. It was another mass assault and was initially successful. Again, South Korean forces collapsed, 
but fierce battles around the Imjin River involving Belgian, Filipino, UK and US troops slowed the advance. This was the most famous British involvement in the Korean War, the Battle of Imjin River in April 1951. 29th Brigade consisted of a Belgian battalion, tough soldiers who flew a Vive la Belgique banner as they went into battle, the Northumberland Fusiliers, the Gloucesters, and the Royal Ulster Rifles. The brigade was thinly stretched on a seven and a half mile front across the historic route to Seoul, but defensive preparations had been minimal. The brigade didn't expect to be there long. The atmosphere, said one officer, was relaxed, too relaxed. On 22nd of April, they were surprised by the scale of the Chinese assault. Lieutenant Kavanaugh was part of a patrol that stumbled into the Chinese attack. One of carriers in front goes up. Whoosh! Christ, 50 of us have run into a bloody army, weapons, helmets, wireless sets, ordo flying in the mad scramble to get out. Back into the womb of the dark, away from the red bee swarms of the traces. Kavanaugh was soon wounded. It was only the beginning. Exposed companies had to fight their own private battles along the line as the Chinese attacked in the dark. Lieutenant Philip Curtis won a posthumous Victoria Cross during a counterattack to recover Castle Hill. Curtis was wounded, but fought on and wiped out a Chinese machine gun post with grenades before he was killed. Anthony Farrar Hockley, the Gloucester's adjutant, wrote an account of Curtis's final moments. Phil raises himself from the ground, rests on a friendly shoulder, then climbs by a great effort onto one knee. We must take the castle site, he says. The others beg him to wait until his wounds are tended. One man places a hand on his side. Just wait until Papworth has seen you, sir. But Phil has gone. Gone to the wire, then gone through the wire, and gone towards the bunker. And suddenly it seems as if, for a few breathless moments, the whole of the remainder of that field of battle is still and silent, watching, amazed the lone figure that runs so painfully towards the bunker, holding the approach, one tiny figure, throwing grenades, firing a pistol, set to take Castle Hill. He never made it. Moments later, Phil Curtis was cut down by a machine gun. Three years later, his seven-year-old daughter went to Buckingham Palace to collect her father's Victoria Cross. As the Chinese attacks continued, Pat Angier, commander of A Company, the Gloucesters, radioed to ask for orders. Hold at all costs, he was told. Don't worry about us, replied Angier. We'll be all right. Less than a quarter of an hour later, he was dead. As A Company hung on, the Chinese outflanked them and broke into the brigade's rear echelons. That afternoon, the Gloucester's padre, Sam Davis, listened to the alarming news coming over the radio. We were isolated by Chinese hordes intent on the kill. It was simply a matter of hours before darkness fell and the lonely battalion would be assaulted on all sides in the nightmarish moonlight. Gloucester was 11,000 miles away. I longed to be able to say stop to the Russian minutes to prolong this quiet, sunny afternoon indefinitely. Night came, and it was a nightmare for the Gloucesters. 
In the morning, what was left of the Gloucesters pulled together on Hill 235, surrounded and running low on men and ammunition. Inch-perfect support from the 25-pounders of 70th Field Battery kept them alive, the gunners raining down devastatingly accurate fire on the Chinese. Brigadier Tom Brodie informed his US superiors the British position was a bit sticky. Yet the brigade was ordered to stay put. Some of Brodie's staff believe the Americans didn't grasp the very British meaning of a bit sticky. The Northumberland Fusiliers were reduced to throwing tins of cheese when grenades ran out before orders finally came through to withdraw. The Chinese harried and mortared as the British fell back. Centurion tanks of the 8th Hussars provided vital support, at times having to machine-gun each other as Chinese infantry leapt onto their turrets. It was every man for himself. Small groups of Ulsters and Fusiliers fought their way off the hills. The enemy were everywhere. Fusiliers jumped onto the tanks only to be machine-gunned off by the Chinese. The tanks blasted high-explosive shells into the road ahead to try and clear the Chinese infantry, who in turn sought to shove pole charges into the tanks' tracks. It was carnage. Meanwhile, back at the Imjin, the Gloucesters were informed that there was no relief column coming. And what's more, they would soon lose their crucial artillery support. They were on their own. The riflemen were down to three rounds apiece, so the decision was made to break out, company by company. Padre Davis and the doctor, Captain Bob Hickey, were left with the wounded. Looks like a holiday in Peking, said Padre to doctor. D Company made it, taking two days and one firefight. Their last casualties were inflicted by American-friendly fire before they could identify themselves. They were the only company from the Gloucesters to get out. For Major Guy Ward, four years a POW in Germany, it was to be another three years in captivity. Oh my God, he said, here we go again. The last week of April witnessed some of the bitterest fighting of the entire war. As well as Lieutenant Curtis's VC, six US soldiers were awarded the Medal of Honor. I believed we had lost the battle, had suffered disaster, but I was reassured afterwards that it was by no means a disaster. The morning after we came out, the soldiers were singing Irish songs, playing a banjo. 48 hours later, they were fit to fight again. I think they felt very proud of the fight they put up. We had no particular animosity towards the Chinese. Indeed, I think we felt great respect, even liking for them. Six miles north of Seoul, the UN held firm. Torrential rain helped check the Chinese and gave time to reinforce the front. They came again in May, crushed two South Korean divisions and poured through, advancing 35 miles. But again, the attack ran out of impetus due to heavy casualties and poor resupply. The Chinese fell back. Their last major offensive of the war was done. As were communist hopes of complete military victory and unification of Korea. Van Fleet counterattacked. 
Slowly, the UN advanced north, but this was a war running out of steam. The UN forces returned to the 38th parallel, and the US indicated they would accept a ceasefire. In July, the communists, who'd suffered over 200,000 casualties since April, agreed to ceasefire negotiations. As peace talks began, the two armies dug in. A war of swift movement and large offensives became static. A modern war turned the clock back to the First World War. Negotiations began on 10th of July 1951 in a restaurant in Kaisong and soon stalled. The communists wanted the 38th parallel to be the dividing line. No, said the US, it was too difficult to defend against future communist aggression. Neither side budged. When the two sides tired of trading accusations, they would sit and stare at each other over the conference table in absolute silence for hours on end. On the 10th of August, they sat in silence for two hours and 11 minutes. The communists broke off negotiations a few days later. In response, the UN mounted a limited offensive. They claimed it was to straighten their defensive line, but it was more to make a point to China and North Korea about the breakdown of talks. For 10 days, the US attacked Bloody Ridge. Eventually, the North Koreans withdrew. The battle cost 15,000 North Korean and 2,700 UN casualties. A lot of dead and wounded men for a failure to talk. The fighting continued for nearby Heartbreak Ridge and took a terrible pattern. The US bombarded, then mounted a full frontal assault, clearing bunker after bunker. Come nightfall, the communists attacked and forced the US back. And on it went. Battles begun by bomb, bullet and shell were inevitably finished by grenade, trench knife and fist as formal military engagements degenerated into desperate hand-to-hand -hand brawls. PFC Herbert Pililau, a six-foot Hawaiian, spent the night of 17th September with his company clinging to a corner of Heartbreak Ridge. They were attacked by a battalion of North Koreans and pushed off. By dawn, they'd retaken the ridge only to retreat a few hours later as they were running low on ammunition. Private Pililau remained to cover the withdrawal. When he ran out of ammunition for his Browning automatic rifle, he hurled grenades and was fighting with his trench knife and bare fists when he was shot and bayoneted, watched by his comrades 200 yards down the slope. They charged back, drove off the enemy and found Pililau surrounded by over 40 dead North Koreans. His British counterpart was Bill Speakman of the King's Own Scottish Borders, a private with a terrible disciplinary record. After the KOSB had been forced off a ridge, he stuffed his pockets full of grenades, told his sergeant major he was off to shift some of them bloody chinks and mounted a one-man attack. When he returned for more grenades, the rest of the company followed him. Speakman was wounded twice, but survived to be awarded the Victoria Cross. I watched Speaky, saw my main eyes. Ten times he charged up the hill, ten times. Into that machine gun fire, mortars coming down. Never seen anything like it. You could feel bullets whistling past you. You wanted to take cover. That's survival instinct you can. But he made you forget, Bill Speakman. He made you stand up and be counted. There he was, charging up the hill, yelling at the top of his voice, calling them all the names you could think of. And he could think of plenty. Bastards. He was hit at least twice, I think. 
Our officer ordered him to get patched up. Speaky ignored him at first, but even after he came charging straight back at them. Then at the end, he saved my life. Saved all our lives that were left. He stood there chucking grenades to keep their heads down while we got away. They didn't make them like Bill Speaker. No anymore. No anymore. After a summer of needless bloodshed, peace talks resumed in late October. Tents were set up in the ruined village of Panmunjom in no man's land. The communists agreed to settle on the current lines as the dividing point of the Koreas. A 30-day limit for discussions was agreed. The front line fell quiet. But the final details remained elusive. The deadline was pushed back by two weeks. Ridgeway called for more steel and less silk. In the trenches, his men held their breath. The main stumbling block was the return of prisoners. The US claimed many North Korean and Chinese conscripts in the POW camps didn't want to go home. Truman had handed Soviet citizens back after the Second World War, and they'd been mistreated, in some cases executed. The US wouldn't let that happen again. To the fury of the Chinese, voluntary repatriation was made a condition of US negotiations in February 1952. It was stalemate again, and meanwhile the weary soldiers in Korea looked around and wondered what they were doing there. Many saw in plain sight evidence of the grim regime they were supposed to be fighting for. Corruption was rife. South Korean President Rhee was a dictator in all but name, and repressed any opposition. In late 1950, foreign office officials had reported massacres by Rhee's men. One report spoke of British soldiers interrupting a mass execution of communist suspects. The South Korean army shrugged it off. This was revenge for what the North had already done to the South. Private Duncan wrote home to his Member of Parliament about an incident he'd seen where 40... Emaciated and subdued Koreans were taken and shot while their hands were tied. The executioners were South Korean military police. We have heard of lots of other occasions of the same happening. I write to tell you this, as we are led to believe we are fighting against such action, and I sincerely believe that our troops are wondering which side in Korea is right or wrong. And still the war went on. The whole country seemed to have become a quagmire. Everything had been beaten down to the lowest level. There seemed to be no society but peasant society. The place was a huge armed camp strewn with homeless children and devastation. Over winter and spring, both sides dug in deeper and deeper. Lines of bunkers, trenches and gun emplacements stretched 150 miles from one side of Korea to the other. The communists constructed huge concrete bunkers linked by a network of tunnels and caves that could hide whole battalions. In mid-1952, General Mark Clark replaced Ridgeway. But this wasn't about the commanders. It was about the negotiators. And in October, talks broke down again. The front settled back into a winter war of attrition. Staying alive was priority number one, closely followed by staying warm. US soldiers lived in hoochies, log and earth bunkers lit by candles, with bunk beds of logs held together with telephone wire. Troops were rotated regularly so morale wouldn't plummet. Three, four days in the front line, then back to warm-up bunkers. 
The US introduced a point system. Each man received four points for every month in close combat. Reach 36, and you were going home. We have a new battalion commander who's a son of a gun. He is crazy for power and loves war. I believe he is actually crazy and should be sent home to a hospital. He talks with a gleam in his eye about the killing of chinks in the coming operation. He hasn't any heart and sent a brand new second lieutenant fresh out from the States out on patrol the night he came to the battalion. And this crazy man is in charge. The high brass think he is a number one soldier. Boy, will I be glad to get out of this outfit. I've sure had enough of Korea. God bless you both. Your loving son, Paul. On the other side of the line, the communists remained put. In the Red Army, there were two ways home, victory or death, and only one of those was likely. In January 1953, Dwight Eisenhower succeeded Truman as president. At National Presbyterian Church, early on the morning of the inauguration day, the Eisenhowers, followed by members of their official family... In part, for his promise to end the war. In public, Eisenhower pushed for a ceasefire. Behind the scenes, his administration was more aggressive. Advances in nuclear weapons meant they could be used tactically. Back passage warnings were sent to the Chinese that this would happen if they didn't get around the talking table. Mr. Truman is now finishing almost 20 years of public service. Moscow heads the communist world in mourning the passing of Joseph Stalin. In March, Joseph Stalin died and the new Soviet regime pushed Mao to talk. The Chinese leader had his own domestic issues to deal with. Nobody wanted war anymore. In late April, talks resumed. At the front, men were still dying. There was a succession of small, high-cost actions for heights like Porkchop Hill, Old Baldy, and The Hook. The British lost more men on the slopes of the hook than anywhere else in Korea. I used to think officers were smart. Now I felt, <laughs> this is stupid. Do they have any plan? They just seem to think the Marines will take that hill. Frontal assault, that's it. On 20th of July, agreement was finally reached. At 10 a.m., a 12-minute signing ceremony began at Panmunjom. A few hours later, Mark Clark signed at his forward HQ. Clark, like many of the US generals, believed they should have bombed China and won a military victory. Nevertheless, at 2200, on 27th of July, 1953, the Korean War came to an end. On a U.S. hospital ship heading across the Pacific, Lieutenant Clyde Four heard the news. Well, this was the first time Americans had ever accepted a no-win war. Everybody else was acclimatized to no-win wars, but we were not. To me, Korea had been an abomination. So many people had died. For what? Keep my love locked in your heart. What had they died for? It was a landmark in the history of the United Nations, showing it could, under US leadership, stand up for the sovereignty of a nation 
and stand up to aggression. Unlike its pre-Second World War predecessor, the League of Nations. But that was only possible because the Soviet Union walked out of the UN Security Council in 1950. A mistake it was unlikely to repeat. And the UN failed to end communist rule in North Korea. The war propelled the People's Republic of China to prominence on the world stage. The Chinese may have failed to unite Korea, like the UN, but they demonstrated an army to be feared. The Cold War was solidified. The human cost was immense. Nearly five million died, with the rate of civilian deaths greater than in the Second World War. The US lost over 36,000 men in three years, compared with over 58,000 in 10 years in Vietnam. Britain lost 1,100 men, three times as many as in the Falklands. Both Korean sides committed brutal crimes against their own people. President Rhee's men massacred anyone suspected of being a communist. Between June and September 1950, the UN estimated 26,000 South Korean civilians were killed in cold blood by the North Koreans. It's a scar that's not healed. North Korea is a very dangerous, so we, we don't know. Terror comes to Korea. Crowds here refuse to see South and North Koreans together in one of the world's biggest sporting events. We want to keep our country. The prisoners came home. Or most of them did. 21 Americans and one Briton, Andrew Condren, a Glaswegian Royal Marine, chose to go to China instead. Condren eventually returned home in 1962. By then, George Blake was back in prison, a British prison. Blake was taken prisoner in North Korea where he was turned and agreed to spy for the Soviet Union. At the end of the Korean War, he returned to Britain to become one of the most successful Soviet agents. I'd seen the devastation in Germany after the war, but it was nothing. Absolutely nothing, I can assure you, compared with the devastation in North Korea. That act, that feeling of shame and the other stages of my development made me feel I was fighting on the wrong side. I felt it would be better for humanity if the communist system prevailed, that it would put an end to war, to wars. If Blake was wrong, he was not the only one. The US didn't learn the military lessons of Korea, as became obvious in Vietnam. Colonel Iron Mike Michaelis believed it was in part because Korea was an unpopular war, and when the soldiers came home, all they wanted was to forget. I don't think that as an army or a nation we ever learn from our mistakes from history. We didn't learn from the Civil War. We didn't learn from World War I. The US Army has still not accepted the simple fact that its performance in Korea was lousy. The Americans are, of course, not the only ones who failed to learn from history. Although the British did remember one lesson. When the Americans asked them to send troops to Vietnam, the answer was a polite no. Today, South Korea has a population of 52 million. 
rebuilt from the absolute ruins of 1953. It's one of the world's wealthiest nations. It hosts World Cups and Olympics. 26 million live in North Korea, one of the most repressive and poorest nations on Earth. Many live close to starvation under the dictatorship of Kim Jong-un, still paying a terrible price for the morning Kim's grandfather launched his men and tanks across the 38th parallel and shattered the land of the morning calm. Next, on wars that shaped the world. The ultimate vision is a self-governing white community supported by well-treated and justly governed black labor from Cape Town to the Zambezi. Africa stands on the eve of a frightful bloodbath, out of which our folk shall come either as hewers of wood and drawers of water for a hated race, or as victors, founders of the United South Africa, or one of the great empires of the world. This series featured William Roberts as General Douglas MacArthur, Lance Fuller as General Stratemeyer, and Julian Alexander as Bulldog Walker. Additional voices from Tim LeCarter, Shang Hongtao, Wang Hui, Bo Young Zhou, WKC, and Thomas Mitchells. Wars That Shaped the World was a Goal Hanger Podcasts production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by Robin Scott Elliott. It was narrated by Paul Waggett. The producer was Neil Fern. The executive producer was Tony Pastor.